0: Alright, we are uh, in Luke chapter 18 this morning, glad you're here on this uh, kind of dreary day after a few weeks of nothing but sun and nice weather. It's, man, it's noticeable when it turns gray and rains, isn't it? But anyway, so Luke 18, thankfully uh, it's nice inside. So Luke 18, we're going to be working through 18 through 30, uh, but we've got a lot of context and so I need you to just have your Bibles open there. I, I don't need you to as much as you need to, but... But realistically, you know, I think it'll help make sense, there's so many threads being drawn together in this passage, it will be good for you to have your Bible open so that you can kind of scan through as we talk about all these things. Last week, we began to answer the question, how do I inherit eternal life? And I told you then, and I'll tell you now, I think it's the most important question we could seek to answer for ourselves and for anyone else. I recognize that that doesn't always feel like the most important question to find the answer to. There are plenty of things that press on us and, and cause us struggle and stress in life that we feel the need over the the gigantic circumstances and difficulties that this world faces I recognize they often seem much more overwhelming much more important to answer than this question how do I inherit eternal life and, and unfortunately the church has kind of responded to this the church by and large has has responded to this and and they have become somewhere along the way they, they switched their view they've switched their perspective and their're preaching and teaching from from uh, following in the example of Christ to becoming very pragmatic and very focused on this, this felt need, this circumstantial uh, pressure. And, I, and I, don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the gospel doesn't have implications for our felt needs or doesn't have implications for the circumstances that we're surrounded by and the, and the world that's falling apart around us. It absolutely does, and we should speak to that. But the primary role of the church Is not to fix the woes of this world. The primary role of this church, of the church, is not to prepare you simply to live now. The primary role of the church, the primary responsibility given to the church by Jesus Christ and the example he set was to prepare you to live forever starting now. And I was reminded this week, just this idea, even as I was preparing and studying for this message, I was reminded in a book I'm reading with a group of pastors about, um, about this, and in some ways we've just kind of chucked that responsibility of, of living forever, focusing on the now. And so, so we, we, we build our sermon series and our programs around this idea that we need five steps to this, seven steps to that, 12 steps to all you ever dreamed. And we build these series out as if it's something that can happen in this momentary. Uh, uh, we're going to fix your life and make it all better if you'll just follow these basic principles. Very pragmatic. But that is not what Jesus did. He didn't, he didn't heal everyone. In, in fact, when he left cities, even after he had healed everyone there, people got sick again. People were possessed by demons again. The consequences of sin didn't leave. Jesus didn't just leave us here to, to, to fix the, the world's woes. He left us here to proclaim that the world's woes are fixed in him. And so look forward to that day that his kingdom comes and is consummated in his glorious perfection. And that the, the woes of this life are, are are pushed away and pressed away. That's exactly what he's been doing. That's the, the primary purpose in his ministry, is, as you see, it was not to make everyone well, to, but, but to make everyone ready. To make them prepared to, to, to the, for the day that his kingdom comes. That's why his final commands to his disciples was not to fix times and dates but to go bear witness, to, to not sit around debating whether it's premillennial, millennial post-millennial, or amillennial, but to go be witnesses that he's coming. And it might be premillennial, millennial post-millennial, or amillennial, but he's coming. It's why he told his disciples to go make more disciples so that more people would be ready for the day that he comes. Jesus' primary purpose was not to make everyone well, but to make everyone ready. That's why instead of telling his disciples, here's your life on easy street, he says to them, don't quit praying and don't lose heart. It's going to be difficult. You must endure. You must persevere. You must not turn back. That's why he warned those that weren't his disciples That's why he confronted them in their sin and warned them that they weren't ready and they should get ready. That's why, as we've been studying these last several weeks, he went from place to place preaching the good news of his kingdom. Not because he was seeking to to meet them in their felt need. But he was seeking to meet them in their great need. His kingdom is coming. That's why he didn't just tell people about his kingdom. But he taught them how they could enter it. He didn't just tell them about it and then walk away. He didn't tell them about it and present it to them and say, Hey, I I hope you figure out your way in. I hope you find out how to get there. No, we've been studying these last couple of weeks now. He took time not just to tell them it's coming, but to tell them how to enter in. And so that's why. Every week we gather, there may be some felt need or some circumstance addressed, but beyond that, those are only ever highlighted to present the need. Our great need is that his kingdom is coming, that in, in, in eternal life is approaching. How do we inherit it? How how do we enter into his kingdom? How do we enjoy the blessing of his kingdom rather than be cursed or condemned by it? Luke has been breaking this out for us. And and again, we see another example as Jesus interacts with another person, this time a rich ruler. Let's read the passage, Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, this is the ruler, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He wasn't just rich. Like, you know, there's the, maybe a line for a lot of people, like, that person's just rich. Like, he was extremely rich. This guy had tons. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. For the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This, this is the second of two real life examples that follows Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you can see that just a, a, two passages earlier in chapter 18 beginning in verse 9 through 14. There's this parable that Jesus teaches and and he and in it he he throws this great reversal into the scheme of their mind into the view that they have he turns everything right side up in in accordance with the kingdom, but upside down in accordance with the view of the world. He reverses it all because these people would have heard about the Pharisee and they would have assumed that the Pharisee is the guy that Jesus would have, have exalted in some way or that Jesus would have lifted up and said, Yes, this is the example I want you to be like. This is the person you should be like. Your life should emulate his. But in the end of the story, the Pharisee is the one that is humiliated. The Pharisee is the one who sent away, not a part of God's kingdom, not having good news because his kingdom is coming. He sent away distant and and, and empty of God's presence and blessing. But the tax collector, the lowest of the low, the, 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 the man who everyone would have looked at and thought, that guy deserves whatever he gets from God. He's the one that who... Who Jesus exalts and says, no, look at this man. Look at this man. He's the one who goes away justified. He's the one exalted to a position of righteousness or innocence before God because he humbled himself before God. Jesus was, was, was turning everything around. He was reversing their whole view. But in the midst of this, he's helping them see that the entrance into the kingdom inheriting eternal life its not how they expect it to be. And as he's teaching about these things, as these things are happening, and as he's going around teaching about the kingdom and, and how we enter it, people are bringing their babies and they're like, hey, would you just touch him and bless them? Just, just touch my baby, bless him, pray over him. We, we long for God's good for him or her. They longed for God, for, for Jesus to touch their children, to pray over their children. And so they were bringing in, and the disciples, Jesus' own followers, rebuked. They're like, no, you got these children, are just going to be a nuisance. They're going to get in the way. And Jesus, in the middle of all this, he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. These are the very kind of people I've come to serve and save. We can't turn them away because they're the very kind of people that the kingdom of God belongs to. They're the very kind of people that actually inherit eternal life. We could draw some conclusions from these two passages, and we actually did. We, won't, we, we, can't, we don't have time to go into them in depth. Let me just hit some highlights for you. From the parable of the tax collector, we saw that the tax collector was grieved over his sin. He wouldn't look up to heaven. He beat his chest. He, he stays at a distance because he is so grieved by the fact that his sin is so real. And he confesses that sin. He did not seek to deny it. He did not paint a pretty picture of himself. He calls himself, in fact, in the text, it says that he calls himself the sinner. He says, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not, not a sinner among sinners. The, in the Greek, it's actually he's recognizing himself as the worst of the worst. He confesses it. And rather than stand and tell God what he deserves, he simply asks for mercy. He humbles himself before God in faith. He looks to God to be good and gracious and merciful. And rather than saying, this is what I deserve from you, he admits his sin. He pleads for mercy. And in the end, Jesus says he gets mercy. Radically different. As as the little children and infants are being brought to Jesus, he doesn't highlight their innocence and their ability to just exercise faith. Little children and infants, infants especially. I mean, little children you might make a case for, but infants don't exercise faith. But that's the term that Jesus is using. They do not believe anything, they're just there. <laughs> but they're dependent and they are defenseless and they are powerless. They're dependent, they must be fed. They must be given everything if they're going to have anything. They're defenseless. If you leave them to themselves, they will not survive. And they are powerless to change their position in the world. They can't do a thing about it. And Jesus says, if we don't receive the kingdom in this way, if we don't come to him to seek the kingdom as one who is dependent and defenseless and powerless, if we stand in front of him as if we have earned something from him or as if we have done something to deserve something from him or as if we can get it on our own, then we are, we are, not, we, we are keeping ourselves out of the kingdom. We are keeping ourselves from entering in or inheriting eternal life. But on the flip side, he says... If you approach him defenseless, he protects you. If you approach him as one who is dependent, he gives you his abundance. If you approach him powerless to change your position in the world, dependent and defenseless before him, he makes you the beneficiary of his great power. And so we were able to draw these conclusions that that this is something we receive. It's not something we earn. It's not something we do. But just imagine now this rich young ruler, this rich ruler, hearing all that Jesus is saying, being exposed to the teaching of his kingdom that has come in the present and is coming in the future, having heard now that there's this great reversal of of people and how the entrance into the kingdom happens. And this ruler, who is not any of these things, says to himself, well, what about me. I'm not a tax collector. In fact, we know he didn't see himself in the same place as a tax collector. because when asked about the law and the rules that he followed, he said, hey, I've been keeping them. I've followed all of these commandments since my youth. We know he doesn't see himself as an infant or a little child who is defenseless, dependent, and powerless. Because he makes reference to his youth, a time in which he became accountable for himself, where he achieved some age of accountability and some age of, uh, of, of ability to begin to perform in such a way that he became acceptable to God. And look, I've done it. He doesn't see himself in either of these places. So what about me? How do I inherit eternal life? So, as I thought about this and considered it, I just wondered in a place in which all of us, every one of us, are much more affluent, privileged, and wealthy than we like to admit. Do we see ourselves as tax collectors and little children or infants? In a place where many of us have grown up in church, making the right choices, doing the right things, following the right rules, attending the right meetings, do we see ourselves in the same seat as the tax collectors? are in the same position as these infants and little children. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't think Jesus is painting America or American Christianity into the gospel. But I think this is the story of many, many, many people who sit in church every week. If confronted, well, look at all I do. If challenged about being dependent, defenseless, and powerless, then, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm, I'm not those things. But there's never a mention of Christ or any evidence of faith in Christ. How do we People like this rich ruler inherit eternal life. See, this guy's looking for a list of things to do. He's looking for a a list to check off or a a, a set of instructions to follow, kind of like a a recipe. You take a couple of teaspoons of this and, and put it in. Take a couple of tablespoons of that and put it in. Take some cups of that and put it in and throw it in the oven for a For a certain amount of time at a certain number of degrees, and boom, you got a cake. I don't think you can make a cake off what I just told you, right? I mean, that's not how recipes work. But it's also not how inheritance of eternal life works. This guy's wanting Jesus to give him another list of rules to follow, another set of things to do. Let me accomplish this stuff so that when I die, after having enjoyed all the comforts of this world and, and all the, the, that this world has to offer, when I die, I want all the comforts and all the benefits of the next life too. Because I just don't want to suffer. I just want my best life now and then. How do I get that? Well, Jesus gratefully doesn't walk away and leave this guy unattended or in his lies and in his superficial views, he actually He actually teaches him. But he doesn't give him something new. I can't even start now as we begin to build out the points. I can't even start now to give you a new point, like some new thing. All I can do is reword what we've been saying over and over. We don't earn eternal life. We receive it. We receive eternal life as a gift from Jesus, not earn it as a wage from our efforts This guy's accomplished. He does not see himself as dependent, defenseless, or powerless. He does not see himself or his own sin at all. It becomes abundantly clear as he approaches Jesus what's going on in this guy. And it starts with his introduction to Jesus or his, his interaction, the beginning of his interaction. He's like, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops him. He's like, why do you call me good? Only God is good. See, Jesus doesn't doesn't reject his, his title, good teacher, because he's not good. He obviously is. We've seen his goodness over and over and over and over. He's expressing his goodness now by not walking away from this guy who thinks he's made it. Just needs a couple little more things to do. Jesus is good. He's not denying or rejecting the title from the guy because he's not good. He's not rejecting the title from the guy because he's not God. Luke spent the first eight chapters of, his, of, his, of, of this gospel record proving to us the identity of Jesus is that he is God in flesh. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a teacher. He, has, he is God come to us. And he shows us that over and over. So he is God. He is good. He doesn't reject this because this guy is wrong. He rejects it because the guy doesn't believe it. This guy runs up to Jesus. I think this is the perspective. There's really about four perspectives that are, that are offered up in, in the world of theologians. I think the, probably the most realistic one because of the way this guy views himself and, and the world around him is that this is just some superficial statement toward Jesus Christ. Like He's just buttering him up. Good teacher? I want a good answer that's easy for me to follow. Right? One that I can approve of and feel good about. Good teacher. You know, you, if, you, if you're a parent, you've been a parent for very long, you'll know that your kids will come to you sometimes, and they'll be like, I love you so much. You're so amazing. I'm so glad you're my parent. You're the best. What do you want? Right? If it's not happened to you yet, it will. It'll happen. But that's, that's what we do. And so that's what this guy's doing. He's just simply buttering Jesus up, and just saying, hey, good teacher. And Jesus rejects it from him, not because it's not true. He rejects it from him. Because the guy doesn't believe it. He's got this superficial view of who God is. Now, let me just just play that out for you. Let me just help you see where we get that from. The the word good that that he references towards Jesus, as I was studying, I found in the Greek that typically in in, in, uh, Jewish uh, thought, this was applied to God as an attribute of God. It's not that they never used it in reference to a man ever. But it it would have been taken as flattery or puffing the person up. So the idea is, here's this guy coming, using a word that is an attribute of God in his goodness, and he's bringing it down and applying it to someone who he just sees as a man. What he's done is, by elevating Jesus with that word and not believing it, He has lowered God. He's got a superficial view of the goodness of God. He doesn't really know it or understand it. God's goodness in his mind is, as long as I've got good, God must be good. He doesn't understand that all God ever does is good. And good is based on God's standard, not ours. He's got the superficial view of God, but as a result of that, he's got a superficial view of his own sin. He's totally missing the idea of his sin. Like It's really interesting. Jesus pulls these, these um, commandments, adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness. He pulls them from the second half of the commandments. They're, they're, they're the commandments that focus on our interaction with other people. It's interesting to me that he doesn't highlight or doesn't speak to this guy about coveting. It's obvious when the guy won't give his stuff up, he's got a covetous or idolatrous heart. He loves stuff and he loves money. But he can't see it. I've been obeying the commandments ever since I was young. Ever since I was required to, I have been living in obedience to God's commands. He can't see it because in his mind, his external activity has demonstrated to him and to the world that I'm good enough. Somewhere along the way, he'd been missing the teaching of Jesus that if you lust after a woman in your own heart or in your heart, you have already committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you have committed murder. He's missed the perspective of Jesus' teaching that says what you do in desire and in thought is as condemning as in action. So even if he is doing all these things on the outside, there's no way he's doing all these things on the inside. And he's got a superficial view of his own sin, he cannot see it. Now, I, want to, I want to try to illustrate this to you and see, show you kind of what happens when all of these things come together. I, we, we use this illustration quite a bit here, this picture quite, quite a bit here. It's called the cross chart. Yes, it's up there. So so at the point of conversion, at a place where a person enters into eternal life, that's the terminology we're, use, we're using today, or a person is saved, a person becomes a Christian, there's this point of conversion where two things move from a simultaneous path to a divergent path. You have an understanding of God's holiness. In terms of this passage, we're talking about his goodness. There's an ever-increasing understanding of how holy and good God is. It doesn't mean that God becomes more holy or more good. It's just you see it more completely, more fully, less superficially. But what also happens is if you begin to see that your sin is much worse a problem, is much deeper an issue than you ever thought before. There's this ever-increasing understanding, ever-increasing knowledge of your own sin. doesn't mean you become more sinful. It just simply means that you see your sin more fully. So the more you mature in Christ, the more you mature as a Christian, you have less of a superficial view of your sin, and you begin to see how it goes into the depths of your Nature, the depths of your sinfulness are, are all the way down into the very core of your human identity. And this, this chasm that's created by God's holiness and our sin, this distance that is created, can in no way can, in no way be crossed by our own effort. It takes a supernatural view of God. It takes a supernatural act of God that results in a a true view of God and a true view of ourselves. And so that's where the cross comes in and we become dependent upon the work of Christ in the cross. Well, here's where this guy is, though. This guy is not at the cross chart. Like, he's not at that point of diverging views. He's got a whole other perspective. In fact, the next picture would show you that maybe he's got a view of God's holiness that's, yeah, man, I I think he's more holy than I remember him being. But he has no understanding of who he is. And if Jesus will just give me the right things to follow, just the small tweaks I need to make, my line will begin to trend upward. And I'll be able to live with God because of what I've done. Well, thankfully... Jesus confronts him with both truth and grace. He doesn't let him remain in his lie. And in the very next verse, in verse 22, he just simply says, well, hey, one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give it away to the poor, and come follow me. Oh, you'll receive treasures in heaven, and come follow me. And the guy is broken hearted. He's sad because he is covetousness. He, because he, is a, he has a covetous heart, he longs for and wants more power and he wants more, more achievement viewed from the world around him. He longs for the, for the seats of honor and the positions of power. He's covetous. His heart is covetous. He, it's full of it. He's so jealous for these things, he loves these things so much. That he loves them more than he loves God. You see, he goes away without getting what he wanted from Jesus because he'd rather receive it on his own terms. He'd rather earn it by his own effort than receive it on God's terms. He loves his money more than he loves God. He wants to maintain his wealth in this life because he longs for it, he loves it more than he longs for or loves the idea of living in God's presence forever. And because he's so lost, he's blinded to his desperate need. <clears throat> Is it possible? And maybe you and some of us are sitting in that place right now. But seeing this, <clears throat> Jesus makes a comment. He just says simply, it's hard for rich people to enter heaven. And just in case you're wondering, we're all rich. In the scheme of things, right? Like you think about life outside of the United States. You think about life outside of Springfield, Missouri. Even if you're not earning a lot now, your earning potential is massive compared to the rest of the world. We are all privileged and we are all wealthy. And it is desperately difficult, Jesus says, for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. It's (laughs) difficult for rich people to inherit eternal life. In fact, he says it. He he draws this contrast. He's he gets he gets hyperbolic here. I mean, like he is exaggerating to the nth degree. And he says it's even it, it's, it's it's harder for a rich person to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And a lot of people have said over the years, and I even heard this myself growing up. I don't remember where I heard, it's just something I heard. Well, what he's referring to is this really small gate in the wall of Jerusalem where people would have to bring their camels, stripped off their stuff, get the camel on their knees and draw them through the gate on their knees. So it's just really, really, really difficult for a camel to go through that eye of the needle gate. Here's what I found in my study this week. There's no proof that gate exists. And then others will say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, he, he said that. But, but the translators of the Bible, those people who were making all these copies and now interpreting it and translating it into to different languages, those people mistook it. And what Jesus really said was it's really hard for camel rope, which is just a really thick rope, to go through the eye of a needle. You see, here's our, here's our problem because we're like the rich ruler. We want to make it difficult but not impossible. Jesus's point is it's impossible. It's as impossible for you and for me to enter into the kingdom. It's as impossible for you and me to inherit eternal life as it is for a big old honking camel, even just a single hump. Camel to get through the eye of a needle that you sew with. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus meant. It will not happen. You and I cannot earn eternal life. It must be inherited as a gift. That's it. Well, man, what am I supposed to do? That's the question we all want. Okay, but what am I supposed to do? to do. Receive it. By God's power, as a result of God's great work, receive eternal life. Because you can't earn it. It is absolutely impossible. But there's this beautiful Way that this passage closes out closes out. It's it's, it's it's really amazing. I mean, just the idea that God was sovereign enough to put these things together it shocks me. It surprises me. It shouldn't, but it does. These people respond to him like now. All these people are hearing this, and they're again. So they've seen the great reversal of how we enter the kingdom. Tax collectors are going in. Pharisees aren't. Children are going in. Whoa, we got to be childlike? That's totally different. There's this reversal upon reversal. Now there's another reversal. The man, if, if, if this man can't get in, this man who, who we would assume is blessed by God, this man who obviously has been honored by God because look at his wealth, look at his position in society. If he can't get in, who can? Like, How can anyone receive eternal life? How can anyone be saved if this guy's not getting in? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. That statement is so full of hope. This guy didn't get it, but he wasn't beyond saving. He wasn't difficult to save simply because he was rich. He wasn't, he wasn't being kept out of the kingdom at this point by God. He's being kept out of the kingdom because he wouldn't just simply admit he wasn't enough. He wouldn't depend on God. He wouldn't, he wouldn't trust in God. He wouldn't listen to the good teacher. I've got I to have this stuff. I've got to do it my own way. And I, I, I hope, I've been praying all week long that if there's any of, any of these rich rulers that live and reside in our church and that might visit this morning, that they would be confronted in this moment and shown the hope that Jesus offers. It is impossible for you to save yourself. But it's not impossible for God to save you. The supernatural work of God can bring people from death to life. That's not the only response we see. You see, the next response we see is Peter. Peter's like, they're listening. So the apostles are there. They're listening. They're hearing all this take place. And they're like, "Who man. I, I can even, I, and this is assumption. I don't know that it really happened. But I can almost imagine they're whispering among, wait, what's he saying? Like, we left stuff. And so Peter steps out, and he's like, hey, we, we, we left everything. But we just got rebuked in the last passage. What, 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 is, what does that mean for us? And Jesus' answer here, I think, is so important. And and, and honestly, if you think about it, it can be really placed back alongside, parallel alongside the rich ruler. He called the rich ruler to sell everything, leave it all, come follow me. And because the rich ruler loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus, because he believed it was good more than he believed that Jesus was a good teacher, because he believed that he didn't really need to leave all that stuff, because he was actually a good person, he decided that it was better to keep it all than follow Jesus. But the disciples, on the other hand, let's just take Peter's case. They're out in a boat. They catch this massive load of fish. They get to the bank. They have just struck. I mean, it's like winning the lottery for them. They're fishermen. They don't have a ton. But man, when they came in, their nets were breaking. It was difficult. Their boats were nearly sinking. And Jesus says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And they believed and trusted him so fully, so completely. That they left it all behind. And they followed Jesus. But it wasn't the rule that they followed that demonstrated that they were being saved or that they had inherited eternal life. It was the very fact that they had trusted Jesus and that they turned from all that they had been living for to walk in repentance so that they could follow him. See, there is a response. Salvation is a supernatural, powerful work of God. Inheriting eternal life demands that God save us. But it does not leave us unactive or just sitting still or unresponsive in any way. When we have been saved, we will respond. This is the idea of conversion. You go back to that original cross chart where there's this moment that we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are and there's this diverging now lifestyle, this diverging truths that that are evident in our heart and life and instead of depending upon ourselves, instead of trusting ourselves, we trust Jesus and his cross and we live in repentance because of Jesus and his cross. So we receive eternal life when we respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. And somehow in the economy of God, I know it sounds like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth here, but somehow in the economy of God, by his supernatural work, by his saving grace, by his, by his power to save and his power alone to save, he calls us to respond in faith and repentance. And when all of these three things come together, when all of this happens, you are saved. We respond to Jesus in faith. We trust him as the good teacher. He's the one telling us truth. We trust him that we are too sinful to save ourselves. We trust him that we are dependent, defenseless, and powerless. We trust him that God alone can save us through Christ. We live in repentance. All of our sinful, all of our sins confess to him and we plead for him to, to give us mercy, not what we deserve, but mercy. We live in repentance, all of our idols, we strive to turn from them in order to worship him alone. Money, wealth, convenience, comfort, approval, whatever those things are that you long for in your life, more than you long for him, you see them for what they are, false gods. When you quit giving your life to them, we turn to repentance and we strive to worship him and him alone. Alone. We commit ourselves to living in obedience to Him and Him alone. That's repentance. Faith and repentance, they don't earn our salvation. But they are the response to His offer of salvation. Because we need Him, not more works. We need His power because we don't have any. We need His provision because all that we have really leaves us empty-handed by ourselves. And so we receive eternal life when we respond to Jesus in faith and repentance we respond or we receive eternal life when we receive it as a gift from Jesus not from wages we have earned. And we receive eternal life in the present with the promise of a beautiful future. The ruler couldn't hear that you will gain treasures in heaven. If he did hear it, he didn't care about it. It didn't mean anything to him. All he could think about was giving up what he had here. So he lived for his life now without regard for his life then. The disciples saw what they had now and they longed for what Jesus offered then. And so they went and they followed him. And he says it again here. Whoever has given up, wife, left house, or wife, or brothers, parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, it's key for the sake of the kingdom of God, not for your own personal advancement, not for your own selfish gain or desire, but for the kingdom of God. Your faith is in Christ. Your faith is in God to do his work. Whoever has left these things will will receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. Let me just go back to where we started. Our responsibility here is not to make us able to live in this life now. Our responsibility is to prepare us to live then. If we focus on this life now, we miss life then. But if we focus on life then, it has implications for life now. If our desire is to inherit life with God forever and that's the hope we have and that's where we turn, that's where we look and that's where our treasure lies and that's all the things we long for are in that life to come it will affect what happens now. And if we receive it in this present life we can be certain of it in the life to come. He says that oh you're going to gain so much in this life. You're not going to feel like you lost. Well, Sometimes it feels like we lose. But what did they gain? They didn't get rich. These disciples, the, the apostles, they, they, they got killed. Like they didn't get rich and they got killed. It's not something a lot of people sign up for, right? Let me just mention two things that they, they gained. Front row seats and backstage passes to all that Jesus was doing. Do you realize that as we are saved and as we enter into eternal life, that we too, Paul even says this in the book of Ephesians, that, we are, that he reveals to us the mystery of his will for the fullness of time. We all of a sudden gain a perspective, a gain an understanding that God is working in a certain way to do a certain thing. We actually get backstage passes and front row seats to the mighty, powerful work of an almighty God you know what else it got that is priceless in my estimation? Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Not just surrounded by him. Not like the, the spirits out there floating around and every now and then they kind of pass through and they feel it, you know. No, it wasn't like that. The Spirit came and dwelt in them. Took up residence within them. And this is the promise of the New Testament for every believer that the Holy Spirit, God himself, and the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You receive God. That's so much more than wealth in this life. But I wonder, do we have such a superficial view of God that we don't see the value of his indwelling presence? Do we have such a superficial view of his kingdom that's coming that we can't be excited and imagine how much better it will be than this life now. See, it's my desire that every last one of us would not walk away sad like this rich ruler. But like the disciples, we'd walk away with the promise of a bright future. Because God, by his power, through his might, has given us eternal life and we are now walking in faith and repentance in his kingdom now, looking forward to his kingdom to come. One last piece, one last quote just to close it out. This all is done with great purpose. And I think J. Ligon Duncan captures the thought well when he says, in that book that I referred to earlier, he wrote this The glory of the not yet is put before our eyes now, so that we, n- not so that we can escape and sing pie in the sky by and by. No, it is put before us so that we can be strengthened to enger, endure, engage, and bless. So that every day we can walk looking forward to the kingdom, enduring whatever this life has to offer, because when this life ends, we step. Forever into his presence. Let's pray. Father, I, I would just ask that you meet us here. In the same way that Jesus met this rich ruler, would you meet us in this moment? For some of us, we don't need to be convinced more of our sin. You have shown that to us. You have proven it to us. And, and we're not shy to confess but for others we're resistant and we get frustrated when it gets brought up and we get angry and why don't you just tell me how to enjoy my life now and leave me alone would you convict us in grace with truth would you show us who we are in contrast to who you are Would you help us respond the way that we've been called to respond? I, it's not one of us that can't grow in our faith. Not one of us. Even those of us confessing our sin and recognizing who we are, we still struggle with faith and repentance. Will you help us grow in that? Will you help us see you as more sufficient? As, will you help us see you as a greater treasure? Will you help us see you in a, in a brighter, more, uh, brighter light, a less superficial understanding of who you are? Will you help us to see you more fully? So that we can respond more rightly, trusting you in faith and obeying you in repentance. Would you help us? For those that have never responded in that way, Father, would you confront us? Would you convict us of our religion, confront us in our own efforts Call us to trust in you and you alone, and obey you and you alone, to commit our lives to you and you alone. Father, would you work so that we enter your life now, or so that we enter your kingdom now, and that we enjoy your life forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.